Each year on May 22nd, the United States celebrates National Maritime Day. It's a day to recognize the maritime industry. It is observed on May 22nd, the date in 1819 that the American steamship Savannah set sail from Savannah, Georgia on the first ever transoceanic voyage under steam power. The holiday was created by the United States Congress on May 20th, 1933. On May 22nd this year, I interviewed Admiral Mark Busby, the United States Maritime Administrator. Today, I'm pleased to share that interview with you. This is the Women Offshore Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Cedeno, a mariner and founder of Women Offshore. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. Admiral Mark Busby is a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral who is currently serving as the Administrator of the United States Maritime Administration, also known as MARAD. In June 2017, President Donald Trump nominated Busby to be the Administrator, and he was confirmed to the position by the United States Senate on August 3, 2017. Prior to his appointment, Admiral Busby served as president of the National Defense Transportation Association, a position he has held since 2013 when he retired from the U.S. Navy with over 34 years of service. As the head of MARAD, an agency within the Department of Transportation, Admiral Busby is responsible for promoting the development of a merchant marine sufficient to meet the needs of national defense and the domestic and foreign commerce of the United States. MARAD functions include maintenance of ships in MARAD custody, administration of subsidy programs and other financial aids to shipping, maritime research and development, and training of merchant marine officers. MARAD also assists the maritime community in the area of ship design and construction, development of advanced transportation systems, and promotion of the use of U.S. flag vessels. Admiral Busby is a 1979 graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Nautical Science and a U.S. Coast Guard third mate license. He is also a graduate of the Joint Force Staff College and holds master's degrees from the U.S. Naval War College and Salve Regina University. I asked Admiral Busby to come on the show to share his experiences as the Maritime Administrator, but I didn't want to be the one asking all the questions. So I reached out to the community at Women Offshore to see what questions they had. And in this episode, you'll hear voices from the community around the United States ask what's important to them, from the status of the U.S. Merchant Marine to dealing with harassment at sea. Welcome, Admiral Busby, to the Women Offshore podcast. Thanks, Allie. Great to be with you, and happy Maritime Day. Yes, happy Maritime Day. So let's start out with a sea story. Looking back at your impressive career, what is a memorable sea story that you can share with us? Perhaps you have a lesson learned that we can all learn from. Well, you know, that's dangerous ground because you're asking an admiral to tell a sea story, but I will do my best to keep it to one. And, I, and I've got plenty, obviously. I'll tell you one, that I, and I've told it a couple of times to the midshipmen up at the academy when I visited and, and to other uh, folks. It's about ethical challenges. You never know when you're going to be challenged with an ethical challenge, and you got to kind of really be on your guard. And for me, while there have been many, one that really stands out is back in uh, New Year's Eve of 1997. I was a commanding officer of the USS Kearney, nice Arleigh Burke class destroyer. I was uh, on deployment. We were in the port of Dubai uh, and just finishing up a, a really great port visit. 
crew had done a great job. It was the last day of the year. Uh, the ship uh, had performed just spectacularly that entire year, and we were the hands-down favorites to win our squadron battle efficiency award, Battle E, which is a big deal. It's a lot of prestige. So, you know, it's good for the captain's career. It's good for everybody that's involved. Uh, but you have to have done everything just right. So we finished our, you know, port visit. And we were, we got underway and we were steaming out the channel. I got past the sea buoy and I'm sitting up on the bridge feeling pretty good about life. My executive officer comes up and said, sir, we've got a problem, which of course you never want to hear as a captain. He said, well, we're, we're missing some classified material, some classified papers. For those of you that have been aboard a MSC ship or you know, Navy ship. Uh, we handle a lot of classified material on the ship, and we have what's called a burn bag, which is basically looks like a, a shopping bag, but it's got red stripes on it, kind of key you that it's got classified material in there. Well, the supply officer had told one of our brand new sailors to go around to all the officer staterooms before we left and collect up all the trash, throw it in the dumpster. So this young man who had been on board the ship only uh, probably a week uh, was detailed to do this, and he uh, went around and dutifully picked up all the bags of paper that he saw, including in the operations officer's stateroom, a big bag of secret material, and dutifully threw it in the dumpster. We discovered, again, about an hour after we sailed. So we were really quick called up the NCIS agent who had been servicing the ship while we were there and said, hey, can you quick run back to the port and, you know, see if the dumpster's still there and see if this bag is still in there. You know, he's about 30 minutes away, drives back to the port, backs his car up, jumps into the dumpster in his suit and tie, and he's dumpster diving amongst all the garbage and everything else trying to find this bag. And we're feeling like, okay, no problem. He'll find it. Everything will be cool. We'll be good to go. He can take custody of the secret. Well, he calls us back a half an hour and says, hey, I dumpster dive this whole thing. It's not in here. But, you know, it's probably okay. It's probably at the bottom. There's not a lot of trash pickers around here. Nobody would have known it was in there. You know, it's probably not a big deal. I wouldn't worry about it. So, of course, all of my officers that are standing around me, there's three of us hearing this, kind of all breathe a sigh of relief. And I looked at him and then said, we have to report this. This is, this is not something we can just let go. The problem was if we reported, it was going to totally kick us out of the competition for being the best ship in a squadron. And, you know, that, that really kind of weighed heavy on everybody. But as I told the guys, you know, if we keep quiet about this, yeah, we'll probably get away from it. And yeah, we'll probably get awarded the Battle E. And when we're painting it up on the side of our ship, every time we walk down the pier and look up at that Battle E for the next year, we're going to know that we didn't earn it. We're going to know that we screwed up and didn't say anything about it and made a mistake and tried to cover it. And we can't do that. Talk to the young man who threw the trash away inadvertently. He, he didn't know any better. He fessed right up to it. Oh, yeah, I saw that bag. I, I took it. You know, we explained to him what had occurred. Of course, he was just about in tears. But I went up and talked to the crew. I got on the last speaker system and uh, explained to the crew what had happened and why we were going to report it. Of course, there was a lot of sad faces because the crew had worked really hard. But I reported it to my squadron commodore, told him all the sort of details, and then I called up the battle group commander, the admiral, and told him what had happened. And he both said, well, thank you, Buzz. I appreciate that. And I uh, kind of went to my stateroom figuring that, uh, you know, we, we were done for the year and it was going to be a very tragic thing. Uh, but about two weeks later, the results came out and sure enough, the ship was awarded the Battle E. Well, I called up the Commodore and said, are you sure? Are you sure you got the right ship? Remember, remember I did call you about this. And he goes, you know, Buzz, you know, what you proved by calling up and fessing up was that you could be trusted. And if I ever had to send you into battle or send you in a tough situation, I know 
that I could trust you. You know, that, that sort of just cemented for me the importance of making good ethical decisions and standing by your actions and taking the blame, you know, for your people if they just screw something up or giving them the credit when they do something good. And that's that kind of stuck with me for a real long time. And I still get calls from people on that ship to this day on New Year's Eve that remind me of that incident and how much they appreciated that example. So there you go. Sea story. Yeah, that's a great sea story. Thanks for sharing that. What a great lesson learned to pass on, especially to the next generation of mariners when you visit the Merchant Marine Academy. Now, as the maritime administrator, you are the head of the maritime administration and in the capacity you advise and assist the Secretary of Transportation, Secretary Elaine Chow, on commercial maritime matters the U.S. maritime industry, and strategic sea lift. What have you accomplished while in office, and what current goals do you have, and would you like to see change? Well, let me answer that second part first in terms of what the goals are. I would say our near-term goal right now is to help try and get the industry back on full bell again, uh, trying to get it back on its feet and, and do so while keeping our mariners safe. It's, uh, clearly, uh, we're in uh, uncharted waters in many ways. None of us can fall back on previous experience for what we're doing right now. You know, we're, we're working very closely with, with industry and with other parts of government to make sure that we're doing everything we can to support industry, that we're you know, helping out with getting personal protective equipment and testing and policy issues. We're working really close with the Coast Guard, trying to uh, you know, support our mariners as best we can. We've been very, very fortunate in regard of keeping our mariners safe so far, even while executing crew changes. And that's after asking a lot of people to stay on board for an extra month. We froze crew changes, uh, or the unions did across the across the industry, pretty much for the second half of March and pretty much all of April. And we've just kind of been doing crew changes over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, touch wood so far, everything is working out pretty well and we're keeping everybody safe. But that's been a big deal. As I mentioned, we're working with the Coast Guard and other governmental agencies to try and uh, remove some of the impediments, create some breathing room for the operators to stay operational and until the flow of cargo begins. And we're just starting to see some of that first flow the three major automakers are, have their assembly lines back open again. So that whole supply chain that supports that is starting to flow again. And the government, which had put a stop move order on a lot of DOD type moves, while it's still stopped, they are now actively planning for a lot of uh, unit moves coming up soon. So hopefully the cargo will, will come back. And, and that's that's what it's really all about is get the cargo flowing again. So, so we're working hard to try and coordinate all that. So I'd, I'd say that's kind of the, the current goal, current focus for right now. I have a conference call with unions and all of uh, the U.S. flag industry every Thursday afternoon. And on alternate Thursdays, I talk to the ports and inland waterway folks just so we know what's going on and try and help them where we can. So that's been pretty busy. And, and as far as what have I accomplished? Well, I've been at it now, I guess, since uh, August 8th of 2017. So getting ready to be three years. I guess the short answer is not as much as I'd like. I'm an acting on verba, deeds not words kind of guy. I like to get stuff done. As Secretary Chow likes to say, governing is hard work, and she's right. Very difficult to get 
things accomplished across a industry or across government. A lot more so than in the Navy. It was a lot easier just to kind of issue orders and have things get done. So it's a lot tougher. There's so many more moving parts in government to, to get even what seems like the most simple and common sense kind of thing done. And, and things just don't happen fast. You have to have a, a degree of patience, tactful. You have to build relationships. You have to do a lot of spade work, grease a lot of skids, and then have a degree of luck and timing on your side. And if those aren't things that you're used to doing, then it's and it's challenging. There's people, you know, that devote their entire careers to skillfully bringing all those skills to bear on issues in D.C. And it's a little bit tougher for an anchor clanker like me, you know, coming off the waterfront, uh, tripping in the door to try and figure that out, get things done. But, you know, that said, we've had some pretty good successes. I think I'm lucky to have some pretty good people on the Marad staff. I've made some pretty good friends, uh, or at least allies on the Hill and in industry. I'd like to think that we've been able to shine a pretty bright light on a state of our sea lift fleet and the uh, the dire need to recapitalize those old ships uh, in the RRF. Hand in hand with that goes the manning situation to be able to crew both our commercial and government-owned fleets in time of crisis. I think I've been pretty uh, explicit in my discussions with Congress about the fact that we're short of people in the merchant marine, and that's because we're short of ships. You know, the kind of things we need to do to try and improve that. We could talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But I think just being very frank and forthright with the public and letting people know we've got an issue and we can't hide it and we can't ignore it because uh, potentially lives are at risk if we have to do a large mobilization and try and move our armed forces overseas and, and the ships aren't ready to do it, aren't ready to go forth. So so that's been a big focus of mine. I think the NSMV, the National Security Multi-Mission Vessel, the new training ship, uh, was a pretty big win. You know, getting the funding to replace all five of those. Hopefully we got funding for three of the of the uh, five right now and hopefully we'll get the rest of it here shortly uh, and then execute a uh a building plan, building program for a government ship using a uh, third-party commercial vessel construction manager to oversee the construction and deliver the ships on time and on budget. Pretty groundbreaking. Uh, never been done before in government. And so um, so innovative that the Navy is actually looking at maybe adopting some of this uh, program practice to uh, build some of their uh, non-combatants going forth in the future. You know, we've had some pretty good successes, but it just seems like sometimes it's wrestling a pig in mud sometimes. You know, it's pretty tough to get through. Yeah, well, it's it's very impressive, everything that you're juggling. And one of the things I've noticed is that you're so open to hearing from people in the maritime industry. And I see you doing a lot of speaking engagements, especially before COVID-19. And my perception is that people are very appreciative of your willingness to listen and to speak, to hold town halls and really get out there. It's important to communicate. It's one thing that I've always preached, part of leadership is good communication, and you can't communicate enough. And uh, when I was outside of Marriott, I criticized Marriott a lot for not communicating enough and very much. So now that I'm here, I guess I better do it. And, and I still don't think I do it enough. But So I thank you for this kind of a platform to you know, allow me to get word out there, too. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. We reached out to some of the members of Women Offshore to see what questions they had. And we got a handful of questions for you today. The first one that I'd like to play for you is from Coronado Hickman in Houston, Texas. She was actually offshore on her vessel at the time when she recorded. So there's a little bit of background noise, but I'll go ahead and play that now. Hello, Admiral Busby. My name is Coronado Hickman, and I am from Houston, Texas. My question to you is, where do you see the future of the American Merchant Marine Fleet going? 
Are there any plans for the number of American ships being produced to rise? Or are they just going to keep dwindling as they have been over the past several years, even decades? Great question, Coronado. Thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks for what you're doing out there out at sea. You're, you're where I wish I was instead of sitting behind a desk all, all day long. Uh, but, you know, I, I get asked all the time about the size of the U.S. fleet. Uh, almost every time that I go testify before Congress, uh, I get asked about the U.S. fleet and how big should it be? You know, uh, when you look back uh, in, in history across, you know, several decades and centuries, at least for all of us, we've always just seen a shrinking U.S. fleet, never really seen it increasing, which, you know, begs the question, well, how, how big should it be? And I thought a lot about this, you know, what's the right number? What's the right number of ships? Should it be 500 ships? It's 87, you know, internationally trading ships today. Should it be 100? Should it be, you know, what's the right number? And the way I answer that is there's really kind of two answers to that question. Uh, the first is it needs to be large enough to meet the national security requirements to deploy and sustain our armies wherever and whenever they are needed. So that's that's kind of about where we are today. I mean, we have shrunk to that bottom line number that we need in terms of square footage to move our armed forces overseas and then sustain them in a major conflict overseas. So, you know, we're worried about at that ragged edge number-wise right now. It's not enough, doesn't support enough people to man all those ships. That's why we're about 1,800 people short, why I kind of say that on a regular basis. So we know what that number of ships is, and, and that's right about where we are. And in, in point of fact, it's 87 internationally trading uh, ships commercially, uh, 61 uh, government-owned ships, so 46 RF ships, 15 MSC surge sea lift ships, uh, and then about 99 large Jones Act ships. That's essentially our national fleet right now, and that's just just big enough to do that first mission. That's to you know meet the national security requirements. The other answer is we need the right number of ships to carry all of our domestic trade. So all of our Jones Act ships, uh, you know, we have to have enough ships to do that. Plus, as the Merchant Marine Act of 1936 says, a portion of our foreign trade. So that's the kind of the, you know, the, uh, the wild variable here. What's that portion of foreign trade amount to? Right now, it's about 1.5% of our foreign trade goes on a U.S. flagship, 1.5%. Uh, so that's not very many ships. As I said, that's those 87 ships I, I mentioned. So, so why don't we have more? Why don't we get more? Well, you know, it's, it's going to depend really on uh, on the U.S. flag fleet uh, being able to operate on a level playing field. When you look at the costs associated with, you know, operating a U.S. flag ship, never mind one that's built in the United States, one that's just flagged in the United States, the cost differential uh, last year was about $6.7 million per ship per year. That's an average across, you know, container ships, tankers, bulkers. That kind of thing. So about $6.7 million is the delta that, that somehow has to be made up. And that's why you know, foreign flag ships, because of either subsidies or you know, cost of wages uh, on those ships, uh, you name it, enables them to operate at much lower overhead and charge uh, you know, a rate that allows them to you know, compete more vigorously or to carry at a lower rate than a U.S. flagship does. So bottom line is, long answer to your question, Coronado, is, is really going to take a national will, a national desire 
to support our fleet in the same way that those other national fleets are being supported because we have to have access to that cargo. We have to offer a service that's reasonable to a customer that's affordable to them, which then brings more cargo availability, which then brings more ships, which then increases the size of the merchant marine and provides more jobs. So it all kind of comes back on a cargo. You know what that right number is going to be? It's got to be more than today, but I don't know exactly what that right number is. So our next question comes from Corey Ablove out of Arizona. Hi, Admiral Busby. Thank you for taking the time to answer questions today. My name's Corey, and I'm a licensed United States Mariner. My question for you is this. What efforts are being made to recapitalize the Marad Greyhawk fleet, balancing the importance of mission readiness with returning value to American taxpayers? So much of the fleet is 50-plus years old. It doesn't just need a few new ships, it needs dozens. For example, the seven-ship Keystone State class originates from the mid-60s. And the eight-ship SL-7 class is almost 50 years old and incredibly fuel-hungry. Thank you again for your time. Yeah, well, another great question, Corey, and uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, those uh, those Ready Reserve Force ships are overripe for being uh, replaced and recapitalized. So, because they compromise the majority of our of our lift, and uh, you know, they if all 46 were available, that would be great. Uh, and we're kind of counting on all 46 being available. But the, the sad fact is, and again, this has been borne out in recent exercises uh, that we had last year, uh, we're supposed to be maintaining those 46 ships at an 85% readiness rating. That's what we're supposedly funded for. And like this morning, we were at 70% across the fleet, and it's hovering right around that average. And that's just because, you know, as any of you that know that are shipping out there on an older ship, uh, you know, when, once you dip steel in salt water, bad things begin happening. And when it's been dipped in that salt water for 47 years, potentially really bad things begin to happen. The reserve operating status crews, all nine of them uh, that are on those ships, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're spending long days trying to keep those ships operating and replacing steel and replacing parts and replacing things that haven't been made in years. So that's that's a real challenge. And that's why, uh, you know, we're working closely with the Navy and with Transcom to recapitalize uh, those ships. And there is a strategy. The Navy owns the funding of the ship. They've come up with a strategy, and that is to do service life extensions on about 20 of these ships that that have service life left in them, potentially out to 60 years, to bring in some newer used ships from the open market. In other words, probably some uh, some maritime security program ships or some other ships that are out there that have, that have military utility that are less than 15 years old that we can buy and modify if necessary, paint them gray, make them part of the ready reserve force, and then potentially build some new sea lift ships. So a combination of those three things, and we're working really closely with the Navy. We've already begun doing some of that service life extension. And some of that's just replacing equipment on the ship that's no longer supportable. Uh, various uh, control systems and pieces of gear that uh, aren't made and can't get parts for anymore. So we're changing those things out. About to hire a vessel acquisition manager. So similar to what we're doing with the NSMV, we're hiring a commercial entity, a company that's going to go out and purchase off the open market, uh, newer used ships 
uh, for us to bring in. That's going to be probably the majority of the new ships coming into the Ready Reserve Force. And we're going to be probably buying those first two new ships by the end of this year. It's too slow. We need to do it a lot more. I need to be doing five or six a year. And we're working with the Navy right now to free up some money to be able to do that. But everybody realizes that's going to happen sooner uh, kind of than later. And as far as new construction uh, goes, you know, that the Navy right now is in a bit of a quandary because they're building big aircraft carriers, they're building a whole new class of submarine, they're building combatants. So, you know, where do sea lift ships end up in that pecking order? You know, predictably near the bottom. So there's probably that's probably going to be a much longer term thing. So I think going out and getting good ships off the open market, and there's you know, a good market right now, I think that's, uh, that, that's the main way we're going to pursue this, to do it the quickest and the least expensive. And, you know, this is this has got SecDef's, Secretary Esper's uh, focus. He's getting briefed on this plan, probably it looks like next week. So hopefully we'll have some, uh, some movement here very shortly. And uh, there's money available to start the, the re- recapitalization process, and we're, we're anxious to get going. The next question comes from Allie Denning, a member of the U.S. Coast Guard in Alabama. Hello, Admiral Busby, Allie, and the women offshore community. My name is Allie Denning, and I work for the Coast Guard in the Gulf Coast. My question is, how is the Maritime Administration working with the Coast Guard to reduce appropriate barriers that disincentivize American deep-sea shipbuilding? Thanks, thanks for that question, Allie, and thanks for your service. Thanks for uh, wearing the cloth of your, of your nation in support of uh, the Coast Guard and support of our industry. Ship construction. Now, we could talk for hours on that. I think I would disagree somewhat with your characterization that Coast Guard regulations disincentivize American deep sea shipbuilding. Uh, you know, we we have not built a U.S. made ship for international trade since about the mid 90s. Up until that time, there was a program uh, called the uh, Construction Differential Subsidy, and what that was was a payment that was made uh, by the government uh, to a company that was building a ship in U.S. shipyards, helped offset set the costs, a higher cost of building that ship in a U.S. shipyard. Once that dis, uh, subsidy went away, uh, essentially there were no more uh, internationally trading ships built for international trade. If you look at those 87 ships today that are trading internationally, there may be one, maybe two of those 87 that were built in the United States, and they're sort of legacy from some of those early days. They are all built overseas now. And, and that's because the cost of just, you know, those other countries, primarily China, Korea, Japan, being the big three, uh, have put in place national policies that incentivize their shipbuilding industry to modernize, to build entire new shipyards that have all sorts of lots more lay down room and automation and much higher productivity uh, such that, of course, their labor costs don't even begin to approach our labor costs because, you know, we're paying for a much higher standard of living around here. And uh, even a minimum wage laborer in one of our shipyards is making a bunch more money than uh, than laborers, especially in a Chinese yard. Again, we, we sort of did a cost comparison uh, last year and, and the costs, average cost for, uh, let's say, a container ship built of, of comparable size built in this country as opposed to China. This, it's about 3.7 times more expensive in this country to build a ship. So surprise, surprise, unless they have to be built here because of the Jones Act, you know, they're not they're not being built here without some significant incentivization. And it's going to take that kind of a decision by this country, a national will, again, to decide that that's important. Thus far, that conversation, while it's happening at uh, kind of behind some closed doors, it's not kind of uh, 
broken out into the into the public yet or into a broader conversation and uh, and it's going to take a while before that uh, that happens i think you know would i love to see a robust american shipbuilding you know industry again i certainly would very important uh, for for national security and uh, you know for our economic security as well. But uh, until we can kind of tackle some of those real fundamental kind of differences that drive the costs so out of whack from our foreign competitors, Coast Guard safety regulations these days are almost very much in line with international regulations. So I don't think that's really a disincentivation as far as I can see. Yeah, thank you for answering their questions. I have more questions from the community for you, but I'd like to talk about COVID-19 for a second. So how has COVID-19 affected the maritime industry? And what is your office doing to support the industry during the time of crisis? You talked about it a little bit earlier, but can you go into more details? Since mid-January, we've been working COVID-19 uh, because way back when, when we, when all the cruise ships were having all their issues, uh, we were asked to look at potentially using cruise ships to house American citizens coming back from foreign countries that may or may not have COVID-19. So we were looking at a bunch of different uh, options along those. Thankfully, we chose not to use cruise ships because you saw what happened uh, in several of those instances. And the decision was made to put those returning folks into uh, unused military barracks around the country. But so we've been kind of working on it since then. And I can remember having my first briefing with industry on the outbreak of first five people in the state of Washington back in end of February and some of the uh, mitigations that were going to be put into effect at that time. And then it just, of course, blossomed like crazy. And we began our weekly calls with industry and trying to uh, put together best practices, trying to identify maritime workers as critical infrastructure people that needed to be able to move around. Uh, so it was like just about every day there was a new challenge to try and make sure we could keep the industry moving forward. As I mentioned, there was the decision made uh, between the unions and the uh, carriers to uh, freeze the crews on board just to ensure that we kept ships healthy and kept ships uh, operating while there still was cargo flowing. And that was very successful, I might add. We had still to this day, and I'm touching wood here, uh, we have not had a serious outbreak of COVID-19 on any U.S. flag uh, ocean-going vessel. And I think that's a, a real testament to the industry, to all sides, union, management, the government, everybody kind of uh, locking arms, doing what needed to be due to ensure that we have the right mitigations in place, getting the right testing regimes in place, the right PPE, and just being very uh, focused on ensuring that we kept this very vital industry operating and operating safely. Maritime industry is kind of a lagging indicator of the economy because it just takes a long time for us to move cargo through the system. And we're just now really seeing some real pain being inflicted in the industry as supply chains have kind of you know, slowed or, or stopped, military cargo not moving, a lot of civilian cargo not moving, cars not moving, either coming or going. So a lot of, about the only healthy part was have been the tanker side, that, which has obviously been driven by different motivators. So the pain is, is probably pretty real right now. As I heard on my conference call yesterday, conditions are dire. Uh, ships are being idled. Uh, ships are beginning to be laid up. Uh, and it's going to be a matter of how long it's going to be before that flow of cargo that I sort of talked about at the beginning that comes back. We're hoping that 
we're seeing the first signs that it is coming back. There's a lot of it that's got to start moving, uh, hopefully in a not too distant future. And we're uh, you know trying to do things uh, program-wise and legislatively that are going to enable operators to uh, hang in there for a little while longer. You know, we've only seen just a couple of bankruptcies, mostly uh, or offshore operators. Just one uh, from a uh, offshore oil field supplier uh, last week, Hornbeck, uh, which is a shame. But hopefully they'll come out of their Chapter 11 uh, be able to keep going. But it's it's a real challenge. But I again I would reiterate that uh, this industry probably better than many most of the others has done a tremendous job in in persevering and keeping it going, keeping cargo what there is flowing, keeping their ships operational uh, during the outbreak. And I think it's gonna I think we're gonna be able to look back in a lot of pride here very shortly that that our industry was pretty damn resilient face of this thing. Absolutely. Keeping track of women in our community, as well as my friends who are in the Merchant Marine, been so impressed with their operations and how they've continued and just stayed on board their vessels, many of them, and didn't really know when they were going to go home. I have a few more questions for you, three more, and I would like to start with Kristen Andusk. Hello, Allie, Women Offshore, and Admiral Busby. My name is Kristen Andos from Long Island, New York. How is the U.S. government working to facilitate changes with shipping companies, both foreign and domestic, during this pandemic? Yeah, well, I, I sort of mentioned that a little bit, but I, I can go in a little bit more detail. Uh, of course, you know, we, we the industry did a, a voluntary 30-day kind of freeze on crew. Uh, that's uh, that's lifted, uh, and we are, in fact, uh, shot, swapping out crews pretty well. Uh, there's different approaches that different companies have taken. Some companies have you know, gotten a crew together and then quarantined them for 14 days in a hotel someplace, uh, keeping them all isolated and testing and making sure that they had a good, healthy crew and then moving them in, in their entirety on board uh, the ship as the other crew uh, departs. Uh, so that's been one method of, do, of doing it. They've been uh, doing some other you know, temperature checks and testing and isolation, various forms of isolation uh, in order to ensure that we have have uh, healthy crew members, you know, really gone into some significant wipe down uh, regimens uh, and limiting non-crew inside the house, uh, keeping them sequestered in particular places of the ship. Again, things have been working fairly well. One area that is still a challenge, and we're, we were working on it yesterday and working on it with the State Department, we have five U.S. flagships that operate primarily in the, the Med, Persian Gulf. Uh, they're feeder ships, primarily for liner service. APL and Maersk uh, are running these ships, and we've been running into some problems with countries out there not allowing crew changes to occur through their countries. Uh, there's some people that have been 200 days or greater on a couple of those ships. You know, they're hanging in there. God bless them. That's a long time to be out there, especially on those runs in those conditions. Uh, we're working very closely with State Department to uh, and the embassies out there to try and get special permission to move you know, U.S. mariners uh, through potentially uh, U.S. bases there. So we potentially fly them into a U.S. base and then take them to the port nearby. So that's that's kind of a challenge that we're working on right now with industry, and uh, we're dedicated to getting released for these folks. But it's uh, it, it's been tough, and you know, just even think about midshipmen doing sea year. That's been a, ch- a real challenge getting them out to ships. We've had to really kind of pull it back so that they do only join ships and domestic ports because it's just gotten too hard to try and do it foreign. But to make sure that they're healthy when they get there and that they stay healthy on board, all part of the challenge that we're trying to work right now. So far, successful. The next question comes from Catherine Gialoni. Good afternoon, Admiral Busby. This is Catherine Gialoni from Baltimore, Maryland. 
My question is regarding the class of 2020 and if we are providing any guidance or structure for them entering the general fleet considering the turbulence around their graduations and certifications. I've spoken with numerous students in these classes and I know that they are concerned. Just wondering what resources we might be able to provide them or any guidance we could give. Thank you very much and have a nice day. Yeah, well, Catherine, you kind of just uh, following on right from what I said there. It, it is going to be a challenge. You know, people who are graduating here soon that are going to be going out into the industry, you know, not going to sugarcoat it. These <laughs> are tough times. This is almost like wartime scenario uh, for people going out there because not a whole lot of people are hiring right now because of, of the current situation. Best I can tell people is, uh, you know, work as hard as you can. Put your shingle out there. Talk to the union. Talk to companies. Uh, you may end up having to go work for uh, an entity that you hadn't essentially planned on uh, initially. Uh, but just to get your experience, just to get your time afloat, uh, I would take every opportunity you can to do that. Of course, that's made all the more difficult by all of the protocols that have to be put into place. But but I am, you know, I'm seeing light on the horizon here. I want to give everybody the impression that it's all doom and gloom because, as I mentioned, you know, the things are starting to move. Things are starting to pick back up again, and that's going to relate. That's going to translate into cargo, and that's going to translate into jobs and ships moving. You know, I don't have time to talk about it here, but there are so many things that are right on the edge coming out that are going to mean more ships. They're going to be more cargo that this whole COVID thing kind of put a, a slowdown, a slow bell on all that stuff. We're going to be coming back up to speed pretty quickly, I think, I hope. Uh, and, and that's going to you know, open things back up. So, you know, for people that are just popping out here this summer out of, uh, out of the academies and you know, with your crisp Merchant Mariner document in your hand, you know, you may not get to sail straight away. It may be couple of months, uh, but hang in there, stay engaged as much as you can. I think we're going to get there. So I think that's, that's about the best I can tell you, Catherine. The last question from our community comes from Kristen Rutzel Sereno from Newport News, Virginia. Hi, Admiral Busby. My name is Kristen Rutzel. We met on board uh, USNS Sacagawea back in January of 2011 during a major download with the uh, USS Harry S. Truman. That was my first underway. Uh, you had met me and another third mate and had said that we were the future of the shipping industry and the future of MSC. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me back then. And it still does now. My question for you is, from a man's point of view, what advice can you give women seafarers who are or have been uncomfortable at work due to any and all forms of harassment, abuse, slander, assault, etc., and are afraid to come forward in an effort to stop it due to the fear of it altering, halting, changing, or actually ending their career. Thanks so much. Hey, Kristen, uh, great to hear from you again. And I remember uh, meeting you on the uh, Sacagawea. We were off the Bay Capes there doing that offload. Thanks for your question. You know, this is something we've been working on for, for too long, quite frankly. Sorry that we have to kind of continue to be working this. My my class at King's Point, class of 79, the great class of 79, you know, we we had the second class of women. You know, we all got along like brothers and sisters. And, you know, and still to this day, I'm very close with uh, just about all of my uh, classmates, including my female classmates. And that goes for, you know, ladies in 78 as well. You know, Nancy Wagner, Kathy Metcalf, all the gals that have done such a great trailblazing job there. But to be very honest with you, I think uh, a willingness to be part of the solution is, is really what about changing the culture. That's really what that's the best advice I can give a woman seafarer. I, I am sorry that it is still tough out there. I'm sorry that there are still uh, boneheads that don't 
quite get it uh, that, you know, we're in a different time and that we are all kind of working together out there for, for whatever reason. There still are some people that are being very reticent about, uh, you know, accepting women as equals out at sea and accepting you as, uh, as kind of what I'd say full-fledged shipmates. I think it's a minority of people. I'd like to think that most people have come around, that uh, we only have uh, a few folks out there that still don't get it. But it's enough people that, you know, influence, you know, some of the uh, females that go out there and put you into situations that you shouldn't, quite frankly, have to endure. But, you know, I would say, uh, and, and again, this is from a man's point of view, which is the only point of view, unfortunately, I can give you accurately, is, you know, I, I think when you are subjected to that kind of behavior, you have to signal however you signal, either confronting them directly or, you know, however you signal to the person who is perpetrating that, that that's not acceptable, that that's wrong, that that's, they've crossed a boundary. They've, I think you have to call out that behavior when it occurs. And, and that's going to take, quite frankly, some moral courage. And it's not, I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be easy. It's not easy as a man when you have to do that in a situation when you've been in a, in a man-on-man kind of a, a deal when a superior is, um, you know, not respecting you or not treating you properly or whatever the, the deal is. You've got to be willing to, you know, call out that behavior. You know, what they, what they do after after that is, you know, that, that then has to be dealt with. But I think you have to have a willingness to do that and know that it may, you know, it may cost you that job on that ship. There's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, there's there's prices to be paid for these things, but I would I would offer that there's probably a greater price to be paid for letting it go because uh, it then gets perpetuated. You know, you got to say so when a line's been crossed, period. It's not, not easy, especially when you're talking to a superior, especially when you're far away from, quote unquote, any help and you're out there kind of by yourself. It's, it's something we as leadership have to continue to hammer away out. Bottom line, it comes down to education in life. It's changing a culture. We've been working on it for years up at King's Point. It's slow, it's a lot slower than we'd like, but changing that culture takes constant education and constant uh, work. You know, I think we're getting there. Uh, I, I hope that we're going to be getting there in the industry as well. I do believe we're much better than it used to be, but we still have obviously a long way to go because you know the question that you're asking uh, obviously you know, points to the fact that you've seen something out there that uh, you know gives you gives you pause or gives you concern. And uh, there are some very brave ladies that have come forward. Ali, you're a perfect example. You uh, have, have stood up and have uh, you know taken a leading role in helping to educate women and giving them support to uh, you know to stand up when they have to. Uh, Fiona Boyle, another one who has uh, you know, done a, a, a great amount of work both at the academy and out fleet uh, to encourage women to uh, you know change the culture and to encourage guys like me that are in positions of authority now to uh, keep pushing on it. So I guess that's the best way I can answer that one. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And I believe it takes all of us coming together, men and women. So thank you for sharing that. One last question for you, Admiral. What can we do to encourage not just women, but people in general to pursue a career at sea? I'm a little bit at a disadvantage in trying to answer that because I decided I wanted to go to sea when I was about eight years old. So that is all I have known. That is what I love to do. And it's what I still enjoy doing is, you know, being on the water and, and being at sea. So for me, it was easy to, to convince somebody else or to encourage them to pursue that kind of career. I think more than anything, you got to be honest with them about 
what it is uh, they're going to be potentially doing and some of the conditions that they're going to be doing it under. Not all comfy and convenient, but, you know, tremendous if they want to be challenged, if they want to have great sense of accomplishment, if they want to have a set of skills that a very few other people have, if they want to travel around and see different parts of the world or parts of the world that most landlocked people don't get to see, you know, to go to visit cities from the water side and not just from the airport side, you know, to get to work with people closely to accomplish uh, difficult tasks, typically in small groups. You know, you're not going to be in a large uh, organization, a real large body of people. You're going to be small unit leadership. If you like small unit leadership, then, you know, a maritime career is pretty good. If you like to get a lot of responsibility early, then, then I think, you know, a maritime career is a good one. I could go on and on and on all the reasons why I love to do it. I just, I just love the freedom of being out there with nature and kind of, you know, existing with nature and dealing with whatever gets dealt up to you, whether it's a nice smooth sea or it's a... Uh, Oh, there's my shift clock. Sorry about that. I can't get away from it. You know, the rough days and the calm days and the magnificent sunsets and the, and the dolphins and, the, you know, all of the spectacular things that you see out there that are changing constantly. It's just a cool environment to be in that, you know, and you, and you get some great sea stories as a result. Thanks so much, Admiral, for coming on the Women Offshore podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Holly. Uh, really appreciate it. And thank you again for all that you do uh, for not only just women at sea, but uh, our industry at large. You really are a great partner. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore podcast. This has been episode 24. I want to say a huge thank you to our community and the people that support Women Offshore. Last month, we asked for some donations and we opened up a swag shop. We're pleased to share that because of all of you who donated and bought items from the store, we're able to keep our mentoring program going even during COVID-19. So thank you so much. Your generosity is greatly appreciated and we'll keep Women Offshore afloat during this tough time. If you want to contribute to Women Offshore, please go to womenoffshore.shop or womenoffshore.org. Leave a donation or get a swag item for yourself or someone special. Until next time, stay safe out there and I'll talk to you soon.